I got to tell you, 837,000 listens to the world famous, the internationally recognized Inside EMS, and Medtronic is a proud sponsor of this Inside EMS podcast. Every emergency call brings you new opportunity to make a difference. Learn how capnography monitoring from Medtronic can help at medtronic.com slash EMS. And here's the man that's going to help me. Ladies and gentlemen, the man that's going to help me bring you a good show. My good friend, Kelly Grayson. KG, how you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm great, man. I'm, I'm ready for the, uh, the Blazing Saddles drinking game you suggested earlier. I, I... I think it's an easy. So everybody, I think they've seen the movie Blazing Saddles. If you've not seen the, bla- the movie Blazing Saddles, I recommend that you do it with a friend. But here's the, here's the drinking game that we're going to play. Any, we're at the next conference or the next whatever. We're going to find a place that we can be secluded, that we can watch the movie Blazing Saddles. And every time there's something politically incorrect said, we're going to take a shot of milk. Yeah, of milk. That's about the only way I would be able to actually make my lectures the next day <laughs> if we were shooting milk. We wouldn't be able to get past booze. We wouldn't be able to get past the first 30 minutes if we were shooting no, alcohol. No. I mean, no. that movie is just so uh, you could make a movie like that today and you know, I think the genius of Mel Brooks in, in some of the movies that he's made, uh, certainly Young Frankenstein, Blazing Saddles, um, you know, even Excuse me, that's Frankenstein. That's right, and you're my Igor. So, you know, but I think that uh, I, I would love if we can petition to get Mel Brooks to make one more movie before he passes on, because I think his genius is incredible, but uh, there'll never be another movie like Blazing Saddles. No, no, there won't. All right, so as we get into the content, there's a, I guess that's us being, I guess that's us being Siskel and Ebert right there with two thumbs up right. for the movie Blazing Saddles, but... Uh, you know, we, uh, this, I was really interested because there was a mass casualty in Burlington, Massachusetts, that one was dead, 10 were hospitalized after they, uh, you know, inhaled a toxic chemical, a cleaning chemical, at a local establishment that uh, was really kind of challenging. You know, Kelly, and as we talked about the call, you know, the question would be, how do we handle a mass casualty incident? In the middle of the city center, I mean, because this wasn't just in the in the middle of nowhere. This is, Burlington, Massachusetts, is uh, very populated, uh, steeped in history when it comes to the Revolutionary War, and mm-hmm. uh, now we go to Buffalo Wild Wings and we hear that uh, you know people are feeling ill. Maybe one person is unconscious. How many of us, without thinking, are going to rush into that scene? And possibly expose ourselves. So I thought it would be interesting to kind of think about this from the standpoint of the incident. I think you and I should opine on what it would be to handle this if you and I were the first paramedics on scene to an incident of this uh, magnitude. And then how we would handle it from that point until we finally declared a mass casualty. Because I don't think we have to really sit here, Kelly, and talk about the specifics of... Who's taken mm-hmm. this? Uh, you know, who's taken this vest? Who's taken that vest? You know, and then the processes as we run the, you know, the responsibilities of an MCI. But I, I would really yeah. like just to kind of think about. You know, you and I often say that we sit, uh, we do this show as two paramedics sitting in a truck. So you and I are sitting in the truck, and the tones go off, and we're headed to uh, the city center to Buffalo Wild Wings, where there are eleven people who are having difficulty breathing. 
um, and they're not feeling very well, or they're lightheaded, or one person is unconscious. And uh, I got to think about it from the standpoint. Uh, I mean, what's the first thing you think? Well, um, I would I would think uh, gas leak or or some kind some type of, of toxic exposure. If I had multiple people in a structure, uh, all complaining of, of similar symptoms, you know, and, and that would couldn't probably it, be the first to get people out. Couldn't it be the food? <laughs> now, nothing, nothing let's, against. Let's not let's not hear from the nice folks at Buffalo. No, Wild I'm, I'm just saying I, I, we're not we're not here pointing a finger. We're here trying to address the problem. Taco Bell bathroom. So, but if so we're saying not no, that kind of hazmat. You know, you automatically went to an inhalant. Um, could it have been something that they've eaten? It it very likely could have been. Usually, you don't. You wouldn't think of that. Um, you wouldn't think of that sort of incident being that rapid of onset where where they're at the the location. Uh, they're still at the restaurant and they're suffering uh, these symptoms. Um, plus, you know, uh, what's what's the chances of of ten, twelve people at a restaurant all eating the same dish? So so that that would be you know, in my mind, but I think one thing it does a great job of illustrating is that, that there, there is no situation or there is no place where you're, you're actually exempt from, from the possibility of, of having an MCI. You know, you, when we think of MCI, what do we think of, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the bus crash full of hemophiliac Jehovah's Witnesses that crashed into the glass factory or the, or the structural collapse or the terrorist event or, or the mass shooting. But something just this innocuous. Um, uh, and, and you don't think of, of uh, Buffalo Wild Wings or a typical restaurant as having chemicals in there that could, could do this. But, but hey, a couple, of, a couple of household cleaning uh, cleaning uh, chemicals mixed together uh, is what did this, and they can do that right there in your kitchen as well. Um, you mix something with with chloride uh, or chlorine uh, solution, which is yeah. what killed the poor victim. Um, yeah, and that's one of the things. One of the things. Your... Yeah, one of the things you see in the house all the time is when people mix ammonia and chloride uh, or, oh, yeah. or chlorine, and and that's very very uh, a very very toxic agent, but. As you mentioned, um, this this incident, if we talk about it specifically, uh, began when one employee opened a container of a cleaning agent called Super 8, which is a chemical sodium hypochlorate or a highly yeah. concentrated chlorine. You know, the question is, is this the first time they're using it? Um, you know, that employee immediately fell ill and went outside to get some fresh air. You know, but, and I didn't mean to cut you off because I, I killed your, uh, you know, your train of thought. But now that I've done that and derailed you, I might as well give you another <laughs> question. But so now when we think about it, you say you'd automatically think an inhalant, uh, you know, people are now um, having some problems. When the firefighters arrived on scene, Kelly, they found a male employee who was suffering from nausea after breathing fumes from a cleaning agent. He was in serious condition, and he was taken to, uh, by Burlington Ambulance to Leahy Hospital, which isn't too far away, uh, where he later died. And I, I, I don't know if the assumption is that this was the individual that opened the drum. Uh, second victim was taken to Lowell Hospital, which is north of Leahy Hospital, uh, by Armstrong Ambulance, who's a private provider up there, long-term, long-time standing private provider up there in Burlington, Massachusetts. And at least nine other people were exposed by fumes. They had driven themselves to area hospitals. 
But, you know, so you made the mention that you would automatically consider it an inhalant. At what point do you automatically say MCI then? So when we think about it from this standpoint, Kelly, I think that there's a big misconception between multi-patient and mass casualty incident. So I would really like to define that first as we get into this process, because a lot of times we want to we want to call a mass casualty incident very well. But, you know, with a couple ambulances, um, multi-patient is a little bit different. So how do you define the two, in your opinion? I think there's there's a very simple functional distinction between uh, between a a multi-patient scene and a mass casualty incident. Uh, And simply put, a mass casualty incident overwhelms your existing resources for whatever reason. Uh, You can have oodles of ambulances on duty and and have uh, one ambulance for each patient. You could have 10 ambulances staged, but have you considered decontamination of the patients, decontamination of the scene, the need for hazmat, the need for traffic control? Uh, these, these individual resources start to pile up very, very quickly on some of these things, and especially on something where, where there's a, a toxic inhalation or some type of toxic hazard where it requires some specialized gear and training uh, to deal with that sort of thing. And, and that's not something most EMS agencies uh, typically have beyond just the awareness level. So anything that would would rapidly overwhelm your ability to respond uh, should be declared. Uh, that would technically be an MCI with relatively few patients. You know, you, you think about, uh, you know, God forbid, the, the Sandy Hook uh, uh, shooting. Um, only Only two or three people were transported from that scene. Uh, but by any definition, it was a mass casualty incident uh, and, and a horrific one at that. But it immediately overwhelmed uh, the capabilities of, of local law enforcement and, and the Newtown Rescue Squad and the fire department and everything else, even though ultimately there were very few viable patients to be transported. So that for me would be the difference between a multi-patient scene and a mass casualty incident. Am I having to call in resources outside my agency, uh, specialized resources to handle this? If that's the case, then yeah, I'm going to call it an MCI. Yeah, I think that you bring up a really good point, and I agree with you 100%. But a lot of times we think that automatically uh, we have to say MCI, and I think that we really have to think about the agency. We really have to think about the organization. And, and I think that this is where mutual aid comes in, right? So, you know, we talk mm-hmm. about that we have 10 patients, um, uh, you know, it says, uh, you know, the, the resources of the article talk about that a lot of those patients transported themselves to the facility, uh, to the hospital for uh, minor treatment. But if we had to take te- uh, eight to 10 patients to a hospital, theoretically, we could take two apiece. We've got five ambulances that we're going to need to transport. Uh, this is where mutual aid comes in as well. So we don't yeah. need a mass casualty incident necessary if I don't have to worry about decon if I don't have to worry about, uh, you know, putting people through the shower, if I don't have to worry about decontaminating the ambulance once we get to, yeah. uh, once we get to, you know, definitive care as well. Uh, but that's where mutual aid comes in. We're here in Burlington. We call over to Concord. We call down to Boston and we say we need some uh, extra hand because uh, we exhausted our resources. So I really think that, um, you know, what you say uh, is a great definition. So here's my next question then. So now that you and I were sitting in the truck, we get the call, we hear this go out. It's your call. I'm driving to the scene. I'm trying to get around that uh, that uh, you know Burlington traffic, which is uh, a big mess to get around, depending on how you're coming in. 
and I just love this area. I got to tell you, I lived in this area. Uh, I was I lived actually at Hanscom Air Force Base, which was right there. I went to Northeastern University in their paramedic program when I left the United States Air Force because I wanted to learn. Uh, you know, I was trained in the military, but I wanted to learn from a civilian paramedic course, uh, which was a great course and one of the well-respected courses up there. You know, so now that we've got the dispatch, uh, you know, the dispatch information, you know, I'm getting you there as fast as I can. Now, here's one of the challenges that happened, Kelly, from the front seat a lot of times. Are you calling a mass casualty incident? Are you calling a multi-patient incident? You know, because one of the things we do is, like, we try to use the resources that we have, right? So we'll say, you know, put the helicopter on standby or launch the helicopter sometimes before we even make the scene. How do you balance now that thought of calling incidents before we make the scene? I mean, we're going to know, uh, you know, possibly we have 10 patients. Do we ask for three more ambulances? I mean, how do we flip this and make this, you know, how do we flip this coin and make this call in the ambulance and route to the call? I don't know that I would call the MCI or declare the MCI before I arrived on scene and assess the scene. I certainly wouldn't be shy about calling for additional resources, and if we don't need them, we can always turn them around or, or release them. We do that with our, our helicopter quite often. We'll put the helicopter on standby or we'll launch it, and my employer um, doesn't have an issue with us canceling the helicopter uh, if it's not needed. Uh, on, on many occasions, it's auto-launched based on the mechanism of injury and the location of the call. But the, the same thing holds true for, for any call that you run. Um, doesn't necessarily have to be an MCI. I mean, for example, Chris, you, you know, you get a call where, where you, you know that uh, based on the dispatch information that there's going to be traffic problems or, or uh, um, that, um, you know, you're, you're going to need uh, crowd control or, or, or whatever. Uh, or uh, if the dispatch information says, you know, lines or power lines are down, you know, you, you're going to you know, confirm that, that, that resources like the power company and police and, and fire uh, department for extrication and, and fire suppression are in route. There, there's nothing wrong with calling for that. Uh, I don't know that I would call the scene an MCI before I laid my eyes on it. The way our, the way our protocols work is that when we, the first arriving ambulance uh, declares formally the MCI um, and the EMT uh, uh, the EMT coordinates with uh, with our communication center, and the paramedic makes a hot lap and, and starts triaging people. And um, and as additional personnel arrive on scene, uh, we plug them into the the holes we we have. <clears throat> and our uh, our first responding supervisor will probably take over as, as incident commander. You know, I got to tell you, I mean, I think that there's a lot of times we really try to, you know, make those calls. And I certainly have done that, you know, send me three more units or I, I agree with you. I would certainly wait for a, uh, till I arrived on scene to make an MCI determination, you know, just for the definition that we gave. Right. But, uh, that's really where certainty comes in. And I got to tell you, certainty in uncertain situations, it's one of the things you need to do your job wherever you are. And it's why Medtronic offers capnography and pulse oximetry monitoring solutions that are designed to give you early insights into your patient's breathing, act faster and intervene sooner. Find out how at Medtronic.com slash EMS. So, all right, so now, Kelly, we made the scene, and we know where we're going to be. I mean, it, it sounded like, you know, you were going to lead me into a question, you know, after, you know, as you were done pontificating, pontificating on, uh, you know, and you were pontif you were up there on a stump, man, but uh, do you have a question? No, um, I I'm wondering what, what we as, as providers can learn uh, from this call. This, you know, 
breaking down what happened uh, on this incident, uh, it makes for an excellent tabletop exercise um, because it's a it's an object lesson in, in, in scene safety and and uh, and priorities. The fatality went back in. I mean, the manager went back in was trying to decontaminate the restaurant after everyone else was gotten out. And that is, that's how he got exposed to, to apparently toxic levels of the, of the fumes. Um, there's an object lesson for us in that, you know, that that's a, a scene that he had handled everything else, got all the people out of the restaurant and evacuated people from the restaurant. The going back in was the, uh, was the, um, uh, step too far. Yeah, and I think that we, you know, when we hear these things, it, it really is good that we kind of figure out how we would do it. I mean, you know, I'm kind of going to get off topic here a little bit, but as a best practice as an EMS leader, one of the things that I would do is in, in incidents like this, and, you know, I think I started it with the Aurora shooting, is, you know, a lot of times we hear in EMS the, the raw footage of that, of the 911 uh, or the radio uh, communications that we have on scene. And one of the things that I try to do is it's easy when you know all the information to play armchair quarterback and to make the determination of, of what was right and what was wrong. One of the things I used to do in any time we had these events, and, and I got to think that it helped us when the Ferguson thing happened in 2014, is that the um, we would play the audio tape of the uh, you know the radio communication in in certain uh, time frames, so we would say, okay, we were just dispatched to our uh, movie theater, we were just dispatched to our church, and this is what we know so far. Don't don't give me the answers of you knowing all this information at the end. They only had this information in the beginning, and they made the best decisions that they could. So we would listen to the snippets of the information up to the point. We would say that we arrived on scene. Where are we staging? What is the you know what does this look like? Uh, how are we going to move forward from this point? Okay, here's the next set of information that we got. Uh, we have this many patients. How are we handling it? So when you say this is a tabletop exercise, as I get off topic and I digress, we need to really start to think about is when these things happen, and this is a great um, tabletop, this is a great discussion point, we need to say this just happened at the Buffalo Wild Wings on the corner of Main Street and Elm, and how are we going to handle this situation? And I think that you know it, it really comes down to a matter of when and not if these types of things happen in our own coverage area that we need to learn from everybody that we make this uh, you know a, a, a priority of education. Um, but going back to your question now, I mean, I think that, you know, we we know how the fatality happened. And this was a leader who took care of his people, took care of his customers, got everybody out and tried to do the right thing in, you know, Indeed. you know, getting things. So uh, it's unfortunate that, that it resulted in a fatality, but it just shows how leadership was uh, working at its best in this point. And again, you know, my, my question was, uh, and I'm kind of getting off topic a little bit, but my question was, is this a new, is this a new formula or is this a new cleaning aid that they've never used before? Or is there something wrong with it that caused this to happen? But I don't know that we'll ever know that, that uh, yeah. situation. So Kelly, I think, you know, as we arrive and as we know, you know, we figure out that everybody's on scene, uh, everybody's outside of this, uh, of this establishment. I mean, how do, ha how do we handle things next? You made an excellent point earlier in that everybody is an expert about somebody else's call and, and that, that what we know in, in the hindsight, looking back on this, it's, it's easy to make those judgments, but in the fog of war, 
Uh, it's uh, with limited information bombarding you, at, and uh, as you're trying to make those decisions, it can be it can be taxing. So I, I didn't want to. I want to clarify that I'm I'm not criticizing the uh, the manager who, who lost his life in this incident. I'm certain he was trying to take care of his employees and his people. And once that was done, he was trying to take care of uh, his his business. Um, but when we when we arrive on those scenes, I think the first thing, uh, first of all, like like any situation, you take care of your people first and, and scene safety. And that would be uh, evacuating the scene and, and establishing a perimeter um, and then making sure that you have the the knowledge, training and equipment. Uh, to go into uh, that zone and, and check further uh, or make the, you know, make the, do the calculus. And, and if there are no people left in the scene, you've gotten them all out. There's no reason to go in at all. The thing that sticks out to me is, is we talk about these things and, and we have a, a hazard hazmat awareness uh, computer-based training. We have to do every year. And, and, and they talk about placarding systems and they talk about MSDS sheets and where those are and, and, and pre-planning and, and that sort of thing. But it, it really, there's a real gap there where these, these semi, seemingly innocuous situations and these innocuous settings where you would never expect to find that sort of hazard. And, and boom, there it is staring you right in the face. Like I tell people, you know, what's the most dangerous truck on the road? It's the Walmart truck. You know, and it's not it doesn't carry enough of one thing to be placarded. But, you know, you might have a, a pallet of Pyrodex pellets sitting next to, you know, a, a pallet of bleach sitting next to uh, a bunch of fertilizer and everything else. You don't know what's in those trucks. And, and, and it behooves you to to use uh, your phrase, keep your head on a swivel. But I, I think from this exercise or from this incident, we can we can learn a lot Um just in in being prepared for a, a bad situation, even in the most mundane setting. You know, I think that there is, you know, I think that there's a lot to learn. I think that we can think about, you know, these calls and how they happen and, you know, how we need to respond to them. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of time that we sit and we wait, uh, hoping, you know, I, I used to say all the time, I'll see you on the big one. And this certainly is a big one. And, uh, you know, the, the folks that are up there in Burlington, you know, we give, uh, you know, kudos to the work that was done in this situation. And, and Kelly, I think that this is just another, um, you know, just another example of how an EMS, you come to work on a regular day and you may not turn a wheel or you may have to go to the city center and deal with a, you know, a multi-patient scene that uh -huh. is going to make national news. And it, it just goes to show that in our career field, we've got to be prepared every single day for the call that's going to that's going to be on that national news that's going to create, uh, you know, a history, you know, the 15 minutes of fame for our community. And, uh, you know, you think that it's not going to happen in your area. You think that, you know, you're not going to be in that situation. And I think that this is where training comes in. I think that this is where the opportunity to, uh -huh. you know, to, to work with your uh, neighboring municipalities comes in. And, you know, we have to change the focus. We have to start to think about EMS in the, in the sense of the big one, see you on the big one. And, you know, we think about this, you know, from whatever communities that we represent. And when's the last time you had a big one? Well, maybe you're due. 
And hopefully that these these calls that we talk about or that we read about in EMS one really kind of gives us the opportunity to prepare for when the big one happens. And you know, I, I worry sometimes that we we laugh at these events and uh, you know we say uh, you know we we kind of joke about the restaurants that's uh, affected in here and and we don't yeah. really take the EMS lesson away and say that oh my gosh what if this happened at our main and Elm? I think that uh, I think that's an excellent point. And, and one of the things, you know, the premise of our, our podcast being two guys sitting talking in the front of the truck. How often do you sit with your partner at a posting location and game plan uh, and, and work out the, the the feng shui of a call or, or, or a hypothetical situation, work out your choreography? Because there's a whole lot of gray area between your policy and procedure and actual putting it into practice uh, where where the boots are on the ground and, and, and real people have to carry out these policy decisions. Do you do you have those conversations with your partner? And I think that's what makes for uh, the best, uh, the smoothest call and, and the, the highest degree of safety uh, for for everyone involved. Uh, myself, I, I know what I'm going to do. If I ever work a call like that with you, you're going to be my great big canary. Uh, I'm going to send you into the coal mine and, hey, look, Chris is horizontal. Perhaps we shouldn't go in there. <laughs> but, but, hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. What lessons can we learn from a situation such as this? A tragedy has happened at the Buffalo Wild Wings in Burlington. We'd like to hear your thoughts at the show at ems1.com. And for myself and co-host Chris Civilero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We're going to catch you guys next week.